This is Pretty Heady Stuff, a podcast that focuses on how contemporary communicators develop and present their work. In this episode, I'm very excited to be speaking with L. Jones, who's an influential poet, political organizer, and professor centered here in Halifax, Nova Scotia. She's been in high demand recently for her critical takes on politics in Canada. In this conversation, she, she reinforces this idea that in order for us to have something like a healthy democracy, um, you have to listen to marginalized voices. I'm going to jump into my conversation with Elle Jones. Elle is many, many things, uh, but she is most of all perhaps a communicator. And so, yeah, I mean, the first question I wanted to direct at you comes out of an appearance you made in uh, a writing course that I taught. And in that course, you, you talked about the ease with which Black writers create texts, intervene and communicate in established genres, and the reactionary ways that the work of Black communicators gets dismissed or disqualified because of assumptions about how that, that ease make, means a kind of lack of effort. Uh, I, I was hoping maybe you could speak to like when you face this kind of phenomenon, this kind of dismissiveness, um, and just like generally your work as a writer, teacher, organizer, and all that stuff. Yeah, so I guess that question is a bit about the relationship between um, cultural factors versus structural factors. So we often say that, you know, a hallmark of blackness is improvisation, right? That we have this particular culture where we aren't necessarily bound by genre, we're not bound by the linear in the same way that typically European cultures have been. Of course, jazz being the hallmark example of that. But on the other hand, we also, I think, develop these practices because of necessity. So because we are locked out of industries, overwhelmingly locked out of publishing, overwhelmingly locked out of media. And when we talk about the election, we can talk about how there's literally no black voices on CBC in election night, despite mm. it being only weeks after we were all in demand for blackface. Mm. So we don't necessarily have the structures we're able to only be a novelist and be funded to do that, or we're able to be a journalist and we're going to get the job on CBC that allows us to pursue that. So I think there's also structural necessity where if you're a black communicator, a black writer, a black public intellectual, you by nature have to be able to work across genres. So I think it's both the cultural piece, which as you point out, it's really important not to understand that it's some kind of just natural thing that black people do, but comes from pedagogies in our families. So oral cultures, um, the ways that we are taught to learn in particular ways, the ways our mothers speak, the ways we live in households with multiple accents and languages and uh, multiple things going on. And we learn to negotiate that, which then I think shows up in the way we communicate and the way we write. But then also, I think the necessity of simply not having access to the same institutional forms of power has made Black people very flexible. Um, by nature, we can have to be Renaissance people. And then interestingly enough, of course, the phrase Renaissance man is so white and was validated when it was white men that worked in a number of areas. But now that it's black people that work in a number of areas, we're all about the expertise in the silo and black people are, I think, less held up because of that. It's precisely because we can do many things that we can do nothing. So the, the kind of fluid improvisational nature of it is precisely what sort of locks you out of these like, yeah, these siloed maybe um, discourses. And you mentioned the political context in which it seems as though there's still this uh, uh, need to break through particular like entrenched assumptions about who belongs in politics, right? Which voices are valid and who can win in politics. Uh, I wanted to, yeah, uh, talk about this moment where, as you say, black communicators were in demand because of this, this context where, you know, the Trudeau blackface controversy made race something we could talk about at this moment. I wanted to talk about Peter McKinnon in particular and the story here locally about Peter McKinnon, interim president of Dalhousie University, where we are currently recording, 
you know, you, you mentioned uh, uh, that when the story broke about Peter McKinnon condoning blackface in his book, University Commons Divided, um, you felt as though the platform expertise and connections that you had at that moment made you, in a way, the only writer who could write an article that could really bring the issue to the public's attention in a thorough yet urgent kind of way. And you also note that we don't really live in a critical age or at a time where that kind of intervention is even seen as productive. Um, how do you think the limitations put on communicators by their platform, their readers, maybe presumed politics, or maybe just by the need to monetize your analysis, how does that reduce what you can say? So this is obviously an issue of how contemporary media is structured. So the McKinnon piece I did, so the students had started protesting and I had been present at that and then was writing an article for the Halifax Examiner. So one thing is I don't have a word count limit at the Halifax Examiner. I can write, I never really go, I don't think I've ever made it in under a thousand words, but you know, right. um, but I can go up to 10,000 if I want, uh, which is of course long form journalism. So if you're talking about conventional media, they'll only do long form if it's a big investigation they devoted so much to because it's going to take up so many pages. Like McLean's isn't going to just give you 10,000 words, right? Mm. That's a major investigation. It's the entire issue. Whereas with the examiner, I can do that as a weekly column if I want to. And in the case of blackface, um, in conventional media, you're limited to about 800 words. You just simply, you know, you have time for one or two quotes. And of course, you can't really rehearse a lot of these political issues. And the result of that is because the discourse is so cut down, it makes it very easy to then say things like you're censoring, you're being sensitive because you can't actually go through all the arguments. So my piece is in like four parts and, and it, it goes through this. So I talked to almost every black scholar who works on blackface in Canada and had quotes from them. And I, I think that came from years of, of doing this work and having contacts where I could call people and they would call me back and give me a quote and trusted what I would do with it. Um, I also, of course, had the analysis as somebody who teaches in sociology, someone who understands race studies, so I could explain this. And then I had this immediate platform where in, in conventional media, if they were going to pass a long form piece, it would be months before it came out. And this was right. like the Friday. I think that's the piece that took the longest amount of time I've ever written on in terms of how many edits I did. And the reason for that is because one of the critiques I make in this piece is how everything's being framed as a free speech issue and being framed through these liberties. And when, when I go back into the book, what I discover is that despite being a law professor, McKinnon actually hasn't done his research. So he's talking about these incidents, but when you go back and look at the original accounts, he uses this language that's very inflammatory in many spaces. So for example, say like the outrage about blackface, and it makes you think that there must have been riots on campus. And then you look back and there was letters written by the Department of Labor Studies. So this very careful use of language to not, and sometimes very unfactual accounts of what happened. So saying that people left a meeting rather than a job interview was interrupted and somebody actually slammed the door on a candidate in the job interview. So misrepresenting things, which is a very common tactic. So I go back and actually look at this. And one of the things I argue is that this scholarship is extremely sloppy. And on the level of scholarship, we have to reject this book, not because we're offended by blackface, but because in making this argument about race, McKinnon hasn't done his homework. He hasn't engaged with critical, homework, uh, critical race scholars. He hasn't even really gone back and got accounts. He hasn't delved into the cases. And so when you're going to make that argument, you can't then be sloppy in your work. The worst thing if you're going to accuse somebody else of sloppy scholarship is if you're sloppy. So in that, that, that was a lot of edits I did to try and make sure there wasn't a single comma out of place in my arguments. But more broadly, I think that indicates a few things. So I think it indicates some things. And there's been a number of stories I've done this way. So I had cite the blackface story, which is a story I'm very proud of. Um, I would cite that story as an example, but also the work on the prison strike, which is a different kind of journalism. But 
I think those are both moments where conventional journalism that is very much about being objective and about these particular processes isn't able to do the same kind of work. So during the prison strike where people just simply couldn't get access to the prisons, they then couldn't speak to prisoners and couldn't really understand why they as conventional journalists didn't have connections into understanding what was happening in jails. And the things that we're often as black journalists accused of, which is being activists, so that we do right. stuff in our communities. And Desmond Cole, of course, sure. famously is, is dismissed slash resigns from the star over this issue, where he's told you have to choose between being a journalist and being an activist, and you can't do both. Um, so this is often seen as a weakness, that this makes us less objective. And I think, in fact, it very much strengthens what we're talking about, because we know what we're talking about. By the time we write about politics, we've also been involved on the ground. So this takes us, if I can keep talking through and jump through, is yeah. to, if we look at election night coverage, for example, and so some of the things that happened there, um, first of all, what you see is that the people that are considered vital to be part of that conversation are all political strategists and ex-MPs. So yeah. <laughs> what, like most of the coverage you see... These are the experts. These are the experts. Yeah. And one of the comments I make on Facebook is you really see the difference between people for whom politics is a job and people for whom politics is life and death. So I've been battling Ralph, Ralph Goodell for years on deportations. Um, he's also the person that's Minister of Public Safety, so that's deportations. It's also gun laws, the criminalization of black people, um, anti-gang laws, guns, trafficking gangs, that's all him. So as a black person, we have a long history of trying to confront his anti-blackness and really dealing with the uh, intractability of that office and finding that. But to people on CBC, this is an elder statesman of politics. They remember covering his first campaign. So when Ralph Goodale is unelected, there's a lot of the people are nearly crying on CBC. And it's, oh, this is so great. I'm like, it would be useful to have another voice in there that might have commentary on what Ralph Goodale's effect on the black community right. has been. And yeah, it might be dismissed as, as too divisive. That would be divisive voice, to say right? that in that moment. So what we get valorized is hands across the aisle. Yeah. Um, there's also that moment when Megan Leslie uh, says to Lisa Raitt from the Conservative Party, oh, you're such a champion for women. But in the previous breath, CBC had talked about how Shear had sent her out into Atlantic Canada to cover up and manage his pro-life anti-abortion comments. Sure. So when you work in a job, and we know this as academics too, you know, you end up having drinks with people in the faculty lounge and you have a different relationship. But when media is in the business of being clubby like this and presenting us coverage where Rosemary Barden, for example, in the current when I was talking about blackface felt free to intervene and try and argue with me about her immigration policy. But when she has Mark Tuohy on, who is uh, Rob Ford's former chief of staff, and he says that Doug Ford is extremely popular in Ontario. In Ontario, she does not come in and say that's not what the polls say. So you often see this bending over to allow conservative space on our public broadcasters to look not biased, and then a shutting out of black voices. So we simply weren't there. And then we're not able to do the kind of interventions that are necessary. So they talked about the returns in Quebec with no discussion of race. Um, the discussion of Alberta went by with no discussion of race. So these very, very basic conversations aren't being had, and they're not being had because they're not even including us at their so-called table. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, uh, the, the blackface controversy, which we've kind of circled around, it, it illustrates that, right? That, that desire to maintain a certain level of civility. Civility seems to be this, uh, you know, an obsession with that as a, as a primary tone seems to be uh, a characteristic of the Canadian media. And certainly, like, leading up to the election, uh, polling experts, you know, they, they projected that Trudeau would, in fact, recover from these images because Canadians are, quote, a forgiving people. But, I, you know, I, it's, it seems to me from what you're saying, it's like it's less about forgiveness and more about strategic forgetting and the politics of that kind of forgetting. And this is Mills. So Mills has talked about um, moves to innocence that are always made on the um, behalf of white supremacy. And we can also say people of power beyond white supremacy. So 
willed amnesia, forgetting the past. Um, mm -hmm. we, but I mean, black people saw this very early. We knew that this was going to be a brief fear. I write that in my article, that this is going to die down in a couple of days. We all knew that. So there's this brief period where we're all in demand to be on the news and everybody has to drop everything and write editorials and, and get this chance to be heard. And then literally as we recede from blackface, the media basically remembers they don't care about us. And so part of this construct is also that because they only call on us to talk about race, they also believe we can only talk about race. So because they'll only call me to talk about blackface, they think I don't also know about our foreign policy. They would never call me to talk about the trade wall with China or what do you right. think Trump's effect is, unless that's through the lens of white supremacy, but not through the lens of trade. Um, they won't ask us about the economy or jobs, even though black communities are highly unemployed and we understand well about job problems. Um, even criminal justice, unless it's specifically about black incarceration. So what happens is because they don't listen to us and don't care about us and don't hear from us, they believe we can only be heard from when it's something like blackface. And the minute they cease to care about blackface, we also cease to exist. And then we're evacuated from any kind of coverage. But of course, we can talk about all kinds of things because we are black people and we are black citizens and there are black public intellectuals. So another part of the construct is the infantilizing of black people that you often see. Mm. So you saw this with street checks how the minister kept saying that, oh, it was the voice of the youth that really swayed him. But we had black lawyers that were um, doing a lot of that previous work. And I'm not here denigrating the work of the youth because it was an all community effort. But why does the minister choose to focus on youth? And that's because that's a point of innocence. Oh, I listened to the children. But he doesn't want to say I listened or didn't listen to, in his case, black legal experts, people that are renowned uh, across Canada that have chosen to lecture. And so our, our intellectualism is often vacated out. Um, the black intellect is very, very scary. Um, and we're, we're really not allowed into spaces. And it's because people can't contend with that intellect, I think, for a, for a large amount of time. And then what would it be if a black person's on the news being smarter than everybody else on the news too? Like, then, then what would we do? How would we maintain our image of what needs to happen? So, um, yeah, I mean, election night coverage is extremely instructive for this. And I would say the most instructive moment being when they had a whole discussion about uh, the block and the NDP seats in Quebec and did not mention race once as a factor in that. Which is staggering, right? Like the and this is the most. This has been the most surprising outcome of the election, in in, in some ways, is the galvanizing of support for the bloc. Um, but yeah, I mean, to not talk about race at all, it seems as though the the there was a certain kind of fixation, though, on Jagmeet Singh's popularity, the so-called Singh surge, as they called it on CBC, and that I mean that speaks to I think in some ways Singh's social media savvy. I, yeah, I, think that, the, his, I also his, called that. I think we right. called that early too. I mean, I, I told CBC very early on that he was going to win the Miss Congeniality Prize of the <laughs> election, um, which is because he handled racism with dignity and class, right. right? So Singh, and we are all forced into these roles in model minorities. And to the extent that Black people don't play along, so us and Indigenous people are usually the disruptors to this um, because of the narratives that take place. So the narrative for immigrants and everybody's imagined to be a latecomer, so if you're brown or black, you're imagined to be a latecomer to Canada, even though, of course, Sikh people involved in the lumber industry in, in BC in like the 18th century, um, Chinese people building the railroad. But that's all evacuated. We're imagined to be recent citizens. And then we're supposed to be grateful because we come from shithole countries that we could go back to. Right. Um, and in order to get capital, the, there is capital in people from other races positioning themselves against black people. So you see this in Nova Scotia, for example, where the historical black population is often like, why can't you guys get jobs? I just came here 10 years ago and I have a job, so why can't you? Mm -hmm. So local structural racism is evacuated and the image of the successful immigrant is put on top, which ignores, of course, that Canada doesn't let in people unless they have a high level of education, high level of literacy, can perform a job. And it creates this narrative. Um, so we all knew Sikh, uh, Sikhs, 
Singh was going to be placed into this narrative as a Sikh man. And he had to, in order to be successful as a politician, he had to play that game. So would you shake Trudeau's hand was a question asked of him, sure. as if he's personally responsible for absolving Trudeau of racism. Um, and then people's kind of idea that we wouldn't vote for Singh, but, but isn't he nice? Isn't he fun? So again, this yeah. comes back to some of the infantilization you see of people of color and the ways in which there's acceptable roles. Like people would be happy to have Singh as a leader forever now, I think. Um, Because he's charismatic, he's fun, he can throw shade in the debates. But that's different from engaging substantially with issues of race or even the issues that Singh was bringing forward about housing and dental care, which are not even part of people's ideas of Singh's popularity. It's not about his policy. It's he's a fun man in a turban. Um, And and so these are the very surface narratives, which blackface is also part of, because the only reason why they'd even acknowledge blackface as a scandal is in some ways because it's cosmetic racism. It's because it's an image and not because you're trying to have a deeper discussion about missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and how that's genocide. People can't contend with that, but at least we can all see the picture and be like, oh, creepy picture, right? So even in that, their willingness to engage blackface as a side of conversation spoke to how they won't have other conversations about race. Yeah, and I wanted to ask about the the conversation and the sometimes self-congratulatory rhetoric around uh, uh, having an important conversation. Do you see that as as symptomatic, as as something that kind of generates a political apathy, um, or it you know, or is awareness part of the point of communication? Like, what are the implications of especially that self-congratulatory rhetoric that we're we're a multicultural country. We can we can have these kinds of conversations. Well, it's interesting as well, because even in our daily conversation, most of us still enter conversations with some kind of goal. Hey, what mm-hmm. time are you going to be there? Seven? Okay, I'll see you then, right? So it's interesting that the conversation of about race becomes some amorphous, goal-less, product-less conversation. Like, that's not actually how we have conversations most likes, unless it's like our best friends that we're chatting to. Mm-hmm. But even then, our goal is to build our relationship. We're complaining to each other. So it's interesting that we have what we always call a conversation. It becomes a goal in itself. We're having a conversation. Don't you think we just need to have a conversation about yeah. race? It's like, but what is the outcome? More, more conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And what is the outcome of that conversation? Yeah. So we're always having an endless, goal-less conversation yeah. with no purpose. And then it's seen as a good in itself. So simply having it is an act. And that's what you very much see in the media landscape, except when we're not having the conversation, for example, when we don't invite any black people on CBC's national coverage, um, then you know we're no longer having that conversation because we decided that conversation is no longer important. So those conversations are decided for us, which is Noam Chomsky, of course, how the media has mm-hmm. pre-decided the conversations the we're kind allowed of to have. The kind, yeah, the yeah. very grounds in which that conversation is had. Yeah. So black people are allowed to talk about blackface, which also works to stigmatize us as people who only care about race and pull the race card. And then it's precisely that, even though they need us to talk about blackface, and they say, do we really want an angry black person on to talk about Alberta? But of course, Alberta's allowed to be angry and that's taken very seriously. Mm-hmm. And Alberta's anger must be listened to, but black people might destabilize this broadcast in some way. So, so there's no place for us. Talk, talked about endlessly analyzed too. The liberal shutout in Alberta has become this like media obsession for sure. And yet, yeah, when, when, when groups get angry and loud, I think that that specific kind of critical dialogue, which focuses on race and, and you know, structural determinants of, of you know, uh, uh, opportunity and, and so on. Like when when it instead pivots to that, it gets reduced to, um, you know, polarization, division. Do you think that uh, uh, there is still room, though, for the kind of critical journalism that you produce, which is defiantly concerned with social justice issues like is it possible to radicalize more people because of the platforms that are maybe at your disposal now? Well, yeah, I'm I mean, being like I was just naively teaching this, hopeful. I was just teaching this yesterday, which right. is Stuart Hall, who talks about articulation, which is okay. that um, I'm going to simplify this, but the idea that um, so you know, Marx is very deterministic, right? That there's 
a worker class and as a proletariat class, and, and those classes determine. And Hall and others point out that in fact, our social identities are quite fluid. We may inhabit two at once. A worker may not feel themselves as a worker at any one point. Um, and one of the things they talk about is how people can take the same pieces of information and end up at different spots. And an example of this, of course, is the success of right-wing populism in drawing upon workers' emotions. So we can all start with the information that corporations are screwing us, the media isn't doing their job, we can't send our kids to college, we don't have any pensions, you know, healthcare is, is dire in this province. And you'd think that that might lead us to, we need a socialist revolution, but it can also lead to right-wing populism. Mm. Historically, it has led to fascism often, and right. it certainly uh, can lead towards Alberta and the Conservative Party. So how do we all look at the same information? People in Alberta don't say, man, the oil industry fucked us. Maybe we should disinvest some oil. Like maybe we really need to come in in a collectivity with indigenous peoples and look about building a new world. That doesn't happen, right? No. So spray painted but, murals. And, this and is so, oil yeah, country. So That's I mean, yeah. So this is the the point about articulation that it happens in that kind of way where the left wing isn't able to capitalize on things. So you know. Some of what Trump's saying, a lot of what Trump's saying is resonating because there are truths to it and the things that also have resonated on the left. So when Trump says fake news, of course, now what he means is you're covering what I actually said. But the reason why that phrase has any traction is because we all know the corporate media is not doing its job. We all know that big corporate mergers mean that we have big media that's produced, you know, all owned by the same people and producing one viewpoint. And that's been a long time staple of leftist criticism. Trump just takes into fake news and puts it onto the right and then uses it to be white supremacist and uses it to justify all kinds of corruption. But it's a criticism that the left has made. Trump made criticisms of globalism, which for him has shades of anti-Semitism. But of course, global critiques of neoliberalism and globalization are also long-term staples of the left. But right now, what people haven't been able to do that the right wing has successfully capitalized on, and particularly the alt-right, is to take that among particularly young white men and radicalize them towards these white supremacist or alt-right or white nationalists or identitarian movements. And so we have to also ask that how does the left do our interventions mm -hmm. in successful ways? Mm -hmm. So if we, we're all looking at the same information that life is hard, life sucks, we're being screwed by the government, but we can end up at oil rigs or we can end up somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. So the point to answer that is that, yes, I mean, I think these kind of things are critical interventions that we have to constantly perform these interventions over and over again because um, the meaning can change at any one point, right? Like information people take in, how people deal with that. Um, and it is, of course, to the interests of the parties who, as I said earlier in the broadcast, as much as like party lines are for us. They're not for, they, like they, when they're like, oh, I, I, I was on a different party, but you know, I love you. You were such a great person. They mean that seriously because in the end, their class interests are protected. Their class interests, CBC might be upset if the conservatives get in because they promised to defund CBC. But other than that, these are all rich people, mostly white people in the, right. <laughs> that don't want their taxes improved and whose lives are not materially changed by any of the changes that come to our rights. So they're not the ones who won't be able to get an abortion. They're not the ones who won't have a their trial. Consciences are clean because they're having an important conversation. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So it's not yeah. life and death to them. Right. So then I'm uncivil if I say, I, I like, buy Ralph Goodale, like, don't let the door hit you in the ass. Like that's uncivil of me, but it's not uncivil of the him to message. deport people, yeah. right? right? So this is what's valorized. And this is what right. CBC and, and but also this public discourse is about, like, can't we just reach out? Why are we in our bubbles, right? right. And you see this- it's so dominant, so normalizing right yeah, now. Yeah, and the rhetoric of divisive, which is a, a conservative dog whistle for brown people need to shut the F up. That's yeah. what it means. That rhetoric is around the idea that everything will be fine if brown and black people just shut up and stop complaining and then right. racism wouldn't exist and we cause mm -hmm. it by talking about it. This, is, this was the response to the blackface controversy was that really ultimately what Trudeau did wrong 
was present himself initially as a social justice warrior. That that was his, he, he leaned too heavily mm-hmm. into his like political correctness. So it's a kind of owning of Trudeau more than yeah. Than yeah that. It's like the hypocrisy was the was the controversy, not the fact that. And and this maybe you know I can I can um, pre- pose a question to you about the level of uh, critical discourse around you know the actual like images themselves. Like the images were. Uh, um, you know, a stand-in seemingly for for coverage. And so I guess my question is, you know, because uh, you appeared on CBC's The Current to talk about the harm caused to Black people by these racist stereotypes and Trudeau reproducing them. Um, and you you talk about how, you know, we, we have to reinforce the idea that these are, are in fact damaging. But the, the interesting thing to me is that you talked about how um, these racist costumes are a weird mixture of different kind of affective kind of like investment. So there's obsession with uh, blackness, with black bodies, but that obsession is mixed with a kind of dread. And what I want to ask is, do you feel that the media's analysis of the causes and consequences of these stereotypes being reproduced was like nuanced enough in terms of like the conflicting, as I say, kind of affective investments? Did the media really understand the history and politics of blackface uh, from your perspective, or was it too? No, simplistic? because again, it's yeah, exactly. It's sort of put into narrative of black people are offended. So if you remember mm-hmm. the first question I'm asked on the card is how did these images make you feel? And the answer that's supposed to elicit is I'm supposed to say something along the lines of oh, it was really hurtful. I was really shocked. But and then I'm supposed to have a narrative where I go, but you know, he's apologized, and I think we can move forward. And I don't actually engage in that emotional kind of language around structural issues. I don't feel any kind of way when Trudeau does it because it doesn't shock me. Mm-hmm. White people have been wearing blackface forever. So this pretense that this is new and shocking every time it happens, yet it happens every few months. It will happen again with Halloween coming up. Yeah. Um, but Hari Kondabolu Con- calls Halloween racist Christmas. Yeah, you know, and this goes back to this point about claims to innocence, right? That every time there's an issue of racism in Canada, the media acts anew as though we never expected this. And what do we do? And this is so shocking. And they could do that every single day and pretend it had no reference to the day before. So I don't feel anything. I didn't like Trudeau to start with and I don't like his policy. So it doesn't make me feel anything. The point is, what does it represent and what does it suggest? And the the minute you leave that language of feeling, there's this trap that I've noticed with this. So on the one hand, providing intellectual analysis is too long, didn't read, right? Or boring or elite or stuck up or something. So they want you to speak in this language of feeling. But when you do that, that's exactly the language that allows you to dis- be dismissed as butthurt, a snowflake, fragile. So we're pushed into this emotional language. And then if we use yeah. emotional language, it's what allows us to be dismissed. But if we use intellectual language and say, well, actually, no, there's theories on blackface and people have done studies, then it's like, oh, I tuned out, like I didn't listen to that. Or they just can't handle it and they dismiss us or evacuate us, right? And this is the problem of the black intellect that I said. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, part of that construct was you're all supposed to be hurt and emotional about this issue when in fact there's nothing emotional about it. And I don't think anybody ought to be surprised that the son of a prime minister in the context of private school dressing up in blackface, which of course there's a long and proud history of. And then beyond that, as I said, the media is able to engage with it because there's a kind of cosmetic sense of that. Like, oh no, like, look at this, this is terrible. Whereas literally in the same interview, Rosemary Barton, when I talk about deportation, says to me, well, to be fair, we're deporting more people because there's more immigrants. And I don't have time to intervene in this in the interview, but like, what does that mean? Yeah. So if we take more people into Canada, we automatically have to kick more people out. What do you think? That we have to, if we're going to take in people, we have to criminalize more people. Yeah. So I didn't have time to pursue this, but this is the kind of argument that even as we're having a conversation about race, she's basically saying there can only be so many of y'all in this country. Yeah. 
And in fact, it's not even true because we know the government has made commitments to deport 10,000 more people a year. So it has nothing to do with more people and everything to do with our government's commitments to deportation. But I mean, these are the kind I'm of... saying it without thinking. Like completely a as a piece yeah. of normal discourse. Yeah. Even as we're talking about race. Right. Because of course, we know that most people being deported are black people, particularly African people, Haitians, Somali, right? So mm-hmm. like Nigerians. So, I mean, it was just another example of how even as we're pretending to have this conversation about race. And of course she has to perform that intervention on me, but didn't perform those kind of interventions upon any of the conservative commentators when I watched election night coverage. And this isn't to pick on people. So I know when you say these things and it's like, oh, so you're saying Rosie Martin this, or you're saying CBC this. I obviously am a watcher of CBC. I'm a loyal CBC viewer from childhood. Um, But the point is this is our public broadcaster and it has an outsized role in how it sets public discourse. A more than private broadcaster has responsibility. Um, A privately owned broadcaster can in some sense do what they want but it says more about our publicly that I also pay for. So I'm more invested in what my public broadcaster has to say about race and why it thinks race is or isn't a conversation. And so really quite literally as we receded from blackface, there was a sort of consensus, sometimes openly and sometimes tacitly made that there were more important issues and that we had moved on. Peter Mansbridge, of course, basically says Canadians, you know, will like move on from this. There was a lot of discussion about saying moving on and then it just didn't become an issue. And then we weren't supposed to talk about race anymore. Yeah, and, and I wanted to ask about Singh moving on. There was a lot of, of discussion of the positive PR results that Singh received as part of this response to the controversy. And it was it was largely about the display of emotion. And, you know, a platform seemed to matter as well. So he was on Instagram, even TikTok, trying to uh, uh, make it clear on the one hand that he doesn't want to be used as, quote, a tool to exonerate Trudeau, but then also kind of emotionally engaging with people of color in this country and saying, like, you are part of this country, you are part of politics. What did, what did you think about his maybe emotional self-censorship? If you want to talk about anger, the fact that he didn't ex- outright express any anger, was this just, just like PR-based thinking well, on his part? let's or? reverse a bit because, you mm-hmm. know, so a lot of people like Sir- Singh surged late, and if he could have done that earlier, the NDP may have beat, because he ends up as the most popular leader. Mm-hmm. But if you remember, the, the, the media isn't covering Singh at all until blackface. So mm-hmm. it's not so much that Singh has this response to blackface that he's responsible in that sense. It's like, that's the only time. It's the only reason why we see Singh on TikTok and suddenly everyone likes Singh is because the media remembered he existed because they needed him for blackface. Yeah. And then once he got coverage there, they started covering him again. But the NDP was not being covered. It was, remember that before that, it was pitched as a race between the liberals and the conservatives. Yeah. And they literally weren't paying any attention to Singh at all. So Singh only gets on the board through blackface and then is able to engage with the media. So that tells you one thing. I think that's an important context. I think the second piece here is, uh, my judgments are never individual. I mean, Singh is trying to, he is leading a political party. He's trying to win an election. And we all know that if Jagmeet Singh said Canada is racist, the headline would be Canada is, and then racist would be in quotes because mm-hmm. the media puts racist in quotes, Singh says, and it would be over. So there's a very fine line. It would be over. Would be there, yeah, over. Like you can't be a brown or black candidate. person yeah. saying Canada is racist. Right. Remember when Michelle Obama said, this is the first time I felt proud of America and talked about how they'd be racially profiled and stuff. And, and that was the wife and mm-hmm. the fire that was raining down on her. So Singh cannot say Canada's a racist country. You can talk about policies, you can talk about grassy narrows, you can talk about those things, but he can allude to it in all these ways, but you cannot directly use the word racist. Um, mm-hmm. Even when he said he didn't have respect for conservatives, he had to walk that back. And, right. and of course, Maxine Bernier can attack all kinds of people over the place and that's not uncivil, but a brown person even saying something like, I don't have respect for that position 
has to walk that back. So yeah. these are all the ideas of the bottom minority. We must be consistently grateful. We must be consistently kind. We must be consistently forgiving. Any flash of standing up for anger is used against us. And we have to walk those lines. So that's not the judgment on Singh to say, oh, Singh should have been angry. I don't know what he feels. He doesn't have to feel anything. But the point is, mm -hmm. though, that we also know that Singh could not, even were he angry, express any kind of anger. Singh's only choice was to be gracious. If Singh had said, yeah, F that guy, like, mm -hmm. If when people come at him and saying, rip your turban off, he was like, get out of my face, Nazi. Like, that would not be a good move. Right. So this is all the idea. And then this is the conversation about race we're having that we bought as, oh, if only everyone would handle race like Singh. And nobody talks about, wow, Singh has to walk around and be attacked by these racists and his life could be in danger because people mm -hmm. are coming right up to him. And like, what happens next? Um, and nobody talks about that because what we're always doing is minimizing and like pretending that this racist threat doesn't exist in Canada, which goes back to Canada's self-image. So again, we didn't talk in any of the election night coverage about the rise of the alt-right. Right. So they, when they talked about Alberta, they didn't talk about the yellow vest. It was barely mentioned. I mean, yeah. So they talked about Alberta has this justifiable anger. We need to listen to them. They need to be represented. This is so terrible for the, the liberals screwed up. Nobody says these people are on Facebook pages talking about how they want to assassinate Trudeau and, you know, are massively racist, but nobody wants to say that. Um, you can't say Quebec is racist because they know it would just be on. And if you said, is Quebec racist? They have this bill that is, you know, the religious symbols bill. There's a long history of racism. There's been kind of all kinds of racist controversy in Quebec. Do you think this is about race? It would be all about how you pissed off Quebec and now Quebec is, and you can't sure. have that. So we're the collateral damage. Fuck us, yeah. right? Because fuck us because Alberta needs to be part of this country and we don't. Right. So how do you talk about Alberta's anger? Nobody talks about the yellow vest. Nobody talks about the rise of hate crimes in Canada. The hate crimes are up, what, 47%? Nobody talks about the rise of white supremacists and alt-right organizing. Even when they talk about the PPC, everybody gives Maxime Bernier, everybody cut to that speech. Mm -hmm. Nobody shut him out. And then it was treated, nobody said, like, when they're like, oh, he's out. You could tell, obviously, people were happy he was out by the kind of tone of the coverage, but nobody actually said he brought a lot of racism with him. And the other interesting thing I wanted to point out there is that it's the conservatives that do the oppo research on the PPC that's all about like digging up their racist posts. And I find this really interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Because they are the ones that pay the company to go back and find all the racist utterings because of course the PPC is a threat to them. The PPC takes their voters. So they need to trash the PPC and make it look radical. And in fact, those stories are coming out. There's a story about this coming out of the conservative party. It's actually in the interest of the liberals to have the PPC running because if they can bleed 5%, 2%, whatever, 3% of the conservative vote, like good, that's all you need. So it doesn't matter to the NDP. Like, the PPC are a threat to the conservatives. And so the conservatives who tell us that we're taking offense and politically correct babies and social justice warriors, and they realize that they needed to weaponize and instrumentalize race, they're the ones that are digging up how racist the PPC is. It's not coming out of the left. That's coming out of conservatives. Mm. So they sure understood race when that was a threat to them. They just don't understand it when, or they understand it, but just, they just pretend that it's an insane imaginary construct when it's black or brown or indigenous people talking about it. And I, I find that, I mean... Rehearsing the hypocrisies of, of white supremacy, I mean, is, is an endless task. It's almost not worth it because it's like, oh, did you know that they're hypocritical? But that's just one example. Right. Yeah, I mean, and, and Trump being, of course, like the emblem of that kind of hypocrisy, right? Like going after the so-called squad uh, as racist in the face of like, you know, being like openly publicly exposed for these like, you know, recorded instances of fomenting mass like hate against right people of color. So, I mean, it's, it's an, uh, it seems like a, we're at a moment where this, this sort of spectacularization of like competitive politics has made racism incredibly difficult to talk about 
because it's just it's well, couched in like outrage politics it's couched in quote-unquote gotcha politics the inv individualism of it you know trump is racist but the fact that we still have to argue about whether Trump is racist, well, whether we can say makes Trump is us racist. stagnant as, as whether or not that's point. outside the bounds the, of civil that's, discourse. Yes, that's more more to the point. Whether we can say it and still remain publicly legitimate as political communicators. And the other yeah. thing is, had and this goes back to what you said about what got Trudeau is that because he had set up an image of a social justice person, right? Because. Trump would just deny those images existed. First, you'd say it wasn't you. That's right. Then you might say something about it. And then a week later, you'd pretend they never existed and that would all be accepted. Because the, the cardinal sin in the media is calling somebody a liar. So the media is not allowed to say to people you're lying. They can say misrepresenting the truth. That's as heavy as they get. And Trump has all obviously exploited this weakness. The inability and the understanding that partly because of how fast social media moves, people's attention spans, but also like if you're willing to be outside these, so so the, the bounds of civil discourse are set and they're used for us, but Trump and those like him have discovered that if you're outside those bounds of civil discourse, it's, almost, it's impossible to debate you with civil discourse. Mm -hmm. So this is him in debates calling people names and stuff. Nobody knows how to deal with this because isn't civility what's guiding us? And so that kind of transgression is impossible to do. So if you just blatantly say, I don't know what, there was no pictures. The media's lying about those pictures. It turns out you can get away with that. Yeah. And nobody's gonna have the guts to be like the pictures right here. So if Trudeau had said, what? Pictures? I don't give a whoa. Like, he'd yeah. probably be better off. What he did instead was carefully construct two apologies. The first one put himself at the center, right? It was really about, he, he used the first person pronoun 130 times, <laughs> right? And then he, he recognized that there was something about that that was a misstep for his brand, I think. And then he, he came up with an even, even more carefully constructed speech. Um, and I think the impact of that, I don't, I don't know, maybe it would have been better off, but I think, you know, the interesting thing is that we are at a point where um, villainizing the media is a smart strategy and, and that seems to have broken politics in some sense, right? It's made it so that the right candidate is the candidate that can beat the candidate you hate. It's mm. entirely just this mm. embattled thing. And so like a person like Stacey Abrams or Kamala Harris in the United States is not perceived from the very beginning as a candidate that has the like the skill, the capacity to be Trump, because she's a woman, she's a person of color, she's even in Stacey Abrams' case, not a media-friendly shape. Right? Yeah, like there no, are all of these all things that. that intersect to make them disqualified as candidates before they even speak. And it's these very simplistic narratives, right? So the reason why I say that Trudeau could have probably gone like, "Yeah, won't like won't me or I don't care," is because that's of course a valorization of the strongman. So we valorize. So of course, right. politics are complex. Everything is complexity, but complexity sounds wishy-washy. It sounds eggheadish. Like, if you give a long, complex answer, you can't soundbite that. So, of course, it's much easier to say, every criminal will be in jail. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah, tough on crime. Mm -hmm. As opposed to if you say, well, crime is a complicated area. Um, how do we really socially define a crime? One can look at, right, like, it's not a sociology class. So, of course, that is what the media is also looking for, that soundbite that you can play in the news. You see this with Singh, for example, when everyone's like, Singh claps back during debate. So you have, like, these very prepared lines, like Mr. Delay and Mr. Mm -hmm. Deny, but he's throwing shade, and, mm -hmm. which is fine. Like, that's what a debate, I guess, is for. But that's not substantive policy engagement. But when we create a media landscape that, that wants that, so winning the debate is having the funny lines and not talking about policy. And then the, why are we having a debate if we're not actually talking about policy? We're having it for the theater of personality. Mm -hmm. And this is the point about the leaders of the parties, how everyone gets very obsessed with the personalities of the leaders. And so in 2015, Trudeau's hot. He's got nice hair. And oh, no, now Trudeau, the bloom is off the rose. Like he had a very difficult year. None of that is to do with what the liberals are offering us. No, it's like Trudeau Can't share move, can share, inspire the right, right? Right. 
but he's a career politician, so we don't know if he's like an every man the way he needs to be. Mm-hmm. You know, Singh's charming, but he's brown, right? So it's like these these so images. Yeah. That's all. Can't it is. harness the mainstream yeah. Canadian and, public and that, imagination. That's the discourse we're involved yeah. in, and the media plays into that because of the headline stories, because of the soundbite. Um, and again, like, how do you participate in that without being completely like commodified by it? I don't think question. you can. I maybe mean, you can't. Maybe I don't know. Maybe it's just the courses I'm teaching. But I mean, mm-hmm. these are kind of the arguments yeah, that is there a beyond about, like, so i mean then you have things. to look at creating a new media landscape but then who would participate in that people thought the internet was that for a while but we've obviously seen i mean the big social media companies for example obviously completely control the flow of information mm-hmm. youtube demonetizes you if you have like anti-war videos Google so it's been sponsoring so this, climate change denial. yeah i mean amazon owns a washington like jeff bezos owns yeah. a washington post um yeah. which then subsequently min- runs in the primary 16 negative stories about bernie in one day right so like we have more information than ever which of course gives us the illusion that we can access all this information but so many things are out of bounds so there was no discussion about anti-war at all anywhere at least Tulsi Gabbard is talking about that in the states you see the smears against her as a Russian asset that nobody you will never see that in a Canadian debate stage like an anti-war candidate um you you, well, you'd see it when the Marxist Leninist Party was running in like the local debates, but that won't make the, yeah, the big no. stage, you know? Um, nobody talked about it's prosecuting seen, corporate it's not criminals. Pressing, yeah. The most radical thing is taxing corporations a little bit more, but nobody talks about breaking up the corporations. No one talks about corporate polluters should, should no. be prosecuted. No, in, in fact, like, green, green Party policies are talked about on CBC Radio in specific terms, like Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. Like these are the terms that are used. And these are very moderate policies. So, yeah. I mean, we're not even allowed to say maybe those people who pollute our environment should be charged and serve life sentences like they do to everybody else who kills people. Mm-hmm. If there were real consequences for corporations, I'm not pro-prison, but I just say, like, let's logically follow suit. We, we don't have that discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, we certainly don't have discourse around cutting the military budget, which we know would give us the post-secondary education and housing that we're told we can't have. So these ponies and fairy dust things that we can't have that we could have if we just moved the military budget over. So like we're not even having those discussions and then people will phrase Jagmeet saying as some like radical outlier when in fact he's very these policies are extremely conventional like a one percent more raise in tax for the super wealthy Ooh, you know right um but again like there's, there's we're not really engaging with that and this is why i think blackface is actually very seductive to bring it back to that mm-hmm. in some ways it's the perfect racial scandal for this kind of thing because it's not a racial scandal of trudeau's office being caught with memos saying like let's deport lots of black people that would be more complex are they really criminals mm-hmm. what do we do right mm-hmm. it's blackface and it, it it allows it to be argued with as in, you know, people get head up. Like, I think people are just taking offense. Isn't it free speech? So it allows that, which means that black people get to be on the front lines of that because CBC is just putting us on. And then we are the vectors of that anger, which conveniently also renders us as the public kooks, the crazies, the emotional ones that can continue to marginalize us both in the media and in society, which is convenient, right? And then it also is this simplistic thing where people can get, I think it's okay to wear black. Is you telling me I can't wear a costume mm. rather than actually talking about race? So I think, it, yeah, it was the perfect scandal for this. And then it's a scandal that you can wrap up and move on mm-hmm. as opposed to something, I guess, in C. Lavalin, which like will drag on forever, right? Like blackface done, dust, and it will be brought out sometimes to embarrass Trudeau, like, oh yeah, well, he wore blackface, but there's no more substantial engagement. Yeah, that was really wonderful. Thank you so much.